I'm Jeremy Black. I'm retired professor. I was professor of uh, history at the University of Exeter in, in the southwest of England. And what we're talking about today is my interest in, um, as it were, re-examining from the historian's perspective some of the more famous texts of um, literature. Fame in the sense of popularity, not necessarily always in the sense of literary quality. And I started that some years ago with Ian Fleming, and I published two books on Fleming, the author of the James Bond stories. I published The World of James Bond and The Politics of James Bond, and we could always talk about those on a future program. And then I did England in the Age of Shakespeare, England in the Age of Austen, that's Jane Austen, and England in the Age of Dickens. I then did two which relate to the two most famous detective writers in history. Uh, I did The Game is Afoot, um, which is published by the American House of Roman and Littlefield, um, and that is on Sherlock Holmes, Conan Doyle, his author. And I did uh, The Importance of Being Poirot, which is published by St. Augustine Press. May I say also that all of the books I'm talking about, with the exception of the Dickens one, are published by American Presses, and this reflects my view that um, although the authors were British, um, uh, Agatha Christie, of course, had American blood. But although the authors were uh, were British, the major country uh, whose culture is now framed in terms of the English language is the United States. And in a sense, discussing these um, writers uh, is important for American uh, readers and listeners as much as, maybe even more than their their less numerous British counterparts. Anyway, writing about Agatha Christie and about Arthur Conan Doyle uh, enabled me to look at the development of the detective novel, enabled me to look at issues of popularity of texts. Uh, Agatha Christie, of course, is the most famous and successful author uh, to publish in the English language. Um, and... Um, I mean, vying, I suppose, in fame terms with uh, with Shakespeare, but in terms of also translating to um, television and film, I think it's fair to say that Christie is more successful now. And um, also to, to try and bring forward uh, a, a theme that I think one can find in all of my books on writers, if you look at them carefully, um, which is that I'm trying to rewrite or reaffirm what I would call the canon. Um, in other words, there has been, largely because of the politicisation of English literature from the left, a attempt to displace established authors, both in the high literature so Shakespeare, Austin, and Dickens would be classic instances, and also to marginalise those in um, the in as it were the popular low literature. So Fleming, Doyle, and Christie would be examples of this, and instead to replace them with supposedly more relevant texts for a modern society based on different emphases in terms of ethnicity, gender, etc., etc. Now, what I've been trying to do is to say that irrespective of your political views, that this is a banal approach, that it often means that, that students' attention, readers' attention are devoted to 
second-rate works just because they're faddish, but also it means that there's a misunderstanding of earlier texts. So, in a way, uh, I would argue that to understand Jane Austen, you have to see her as a profoundly religious writer, which is not surprising. Uh, She was the daughter and sister of clergy. She wrote her own prayers. She was a very devout churchwoman. You know, that in a sense, that is the basis of her morality, and that to present her characters as kind of um, proto-capital R romanticism is to misunderstand her. And I would also argue that if you wish to understand uh, Fleming or Doyle or Christie, you have to very much see them in terms of the morality they're propounding, that in Fleming's novels there is a quite clear Manichaean view of the world between good and evil, and evil is represented by the Soviet Union and subsequently by Spectre, and that if you don't understand that and if you think there's some kind of equivalence between the two, uh, sorry, between evil and the Secret Intelligence Service, you don't understand what Fleming is arguing, that in the case of Christie, there is a very clear um, emphasis, as with Jane Austen, on a religious uh, worldview and on the crime as arising through pride, hubris, and selfishness, and that Nemesis ensures that it has to be punished, and that in the case of Doyle, um, uh, Sherlock Holmes uh, is also uh, the defender of the innocent and the, as it were, punisher of the evil. So that these are moral, that the detective story as classically construed worked on a moral fashion, that in many senses indeed it was related to um, many of the themes of classical literature um, about the uh, discovery of true intention. I mean, one can argue that Hamlet is essentially a detective story um, uh, very much in those terms. Um, and that there is a moral closure which reaffirms values even if it can leave protagonists uh, damaged or dead. Um, So that was my basis, and I'm going on. I have future works coming out re-examining the writings of Daniel Defoe, separately of Henry Fielding, separately of Tobias Smollett, and separately of the Gothic novel um, from uh, the Castle of Otranto (coughs) to Dracula. Now, can I ask, I find it interesting that you said this politicization of the canon, sort of that feels unfair shoving of works into the canon and unfair shoving out in the canon. Now, I feel that happens in the United States as well. What is your perception that it feels more advanced or different in the UK than your perception in the United States of that? Well, I mean, thank you. That's an interesting question. I mean, the United States, of course, is a continent pretending to be a country. It's a, <laughs> an amalgam. It's an amalgam of a wide number of cultures. What the dominant culture might be in Minnesota might not be the same as the dominant culture in Mississippi. But I think you're correct that there is. Um, in terms of what you might call, and there are good people in the universities. There are people committed to scholarship 
uh, open-minded, willing to see different points of view. But I'm afraid to say that in American universities, as in British universities, there are also many, many individuals who have made their career by espousing what one can only say as a hatred of the traditions of the culture that they live in and a determination to assert a highly problematic sense of um, identity values in order to undercut it. And, you know, uh, as private individuals, I mean, that's they're, fu- they're fully entitled to do that. But they are obviously using, in many cases, their position in the universities to propound an ideology. And I'm not sure that I'm particularly happy about it or regard it as particularly sensible. Um, and, you know, I'm torn in two different directions here because um, I, I suppose one's got to be very careful how one defines oneself because things mean different things in different cultures. But I would consider myself a, a libertarian conservative in the sense a libertarian in the because I believe that in a democracy you must allow people to articulate, think, feel, uh, read, write and speak um, as they wish unless they are actively causing uh, an incitement to violence against others. Uh, But at the same time, as a conservative, I have a sense of the often fragile nature of society, a sense of continuity, a sense of the need to affirm, reaffirm and confirm values that hold a community together. So my uh, attitude to universities, and you know, I spent my career in universities, my attitude to universities is I'm all in favour of the freedom of people to express their opinions, but you end up with the sort of absurd situation that existed in the department I was a member of by the end in 2020 when I retired, which is the University of Exeter, which is a very large department of history, There were 65 members of staff. Uh, There was myself as a overt conservative. There was one other conservative who was quiet. And then there were 63 people on the left. And (laughs) I think that's that's taking people's ability to um, express their opinion to the extent of a form of um, as it were, sandbagging, sandbagging those of different opinions. And I think that was what was going on. So, and now that particular department, like many other departments, it's not unique in its stupidity, uh, like many other departments, um, affirms what they call decolonization and expects people to demonstrate it in the courses that they teach, um, which is a very party-pre approach and which I am sure, with the perspective of history in the future, will be just seen as a kind of rather banal but dangerous indoctrination. For you personally, why were mysteries and detective fiction in particular, and maybe in the case of uh, uh, Fleming, spy and adventure stuff, these are often dismissed as this is just genre fiction in the same way romances are dismissed as genre fiction. And they don't I don't think they talk a lot. They don't seem to figure a lot sometimes in the canon discussion. 
why were why was detective fiction and mystery so important to you in trying to reestablish or help people understand the historical impact and influences inside genre fiction? Thank you. That's, again, an interesting question. I've always been concerned with what people read as opposed to what they're supposed to read. So, um, as you may be aware, detective fiction is extraordinarily popular in yes. Britain. It's, it's popular, of course, in the United States and many other countries. So, it varies by country, which itself is interesting. Um, and you could see the same thing if you liked looking at my own subject, history. If you look at general readership, you will find that biography is very popular, as in um, the United States. You can think of authors like McCulloch, for example. Um, and yet, uh, I think it's fair to say that most people who write about historiography underrate uh, biography and put an overemphasis on often formal theoretical work. So I'm rather dubious about the emphasis placed on theory. I'm dubious about the influence placed on faddishness. And I think going, putting the nail on what she was saying, I think writing skills, characterization, narrative, the handling of language, uh, the adept use of adjectives and adverbs, a rhythm in the words employed, uh, and these are by no means uh, prior given in the list of priorities, prioritised, nor they uh, end that, um, that uh, little diatribe. All of those are important, whether you are talking about the kind of novel that is going to win a prize, let us say the Booker Prize, or because it's seen as in some way literary, or whether you're talking about works that are non-literary. I mean, I publish every month on the website of the Critic magazine a review of, uh, of detective novels, and um, which I think is free of access if listeners wish to, to read it all. And um, in that, I draw attention to well-written ones and poorly written ones. So it, <laughs> I would say that rather than considering genres in competition – one should rather say one is looking for the same kind of skills um, across all writing. And I would argue the same thing is true if you're looking at history rather than thinking of, I don't know, military history against ecclesiastical history, against political history, against biography. One should be looking at <coughs> people that are able to ask intelligent questions, people that understand the ambiguity of evidence, people that are willing to, um, uh, as it were, um, advance a case without pretending to the great vanity of being definitive. And that's important, whatever type of history you're addressing, rather than thinking again in terms of genres and their competition. Is there thinking about the popular consumption of these things and how you're kind of saying, rather than thinking about what the theory of a proper book should look like, let's see what people are really reading. And obviously, detective fiction is massively important if you judge by how often people read it. There are far more people now, I would say, who have seen television adaptations or movies 
of Agatha Christie stories and Arthur Conan Doyle stories, but I can't remember whether it's in the Perot or the Holmes one where you said, you have to read the books. So I, I want you to make a pitch that it's not enough to watch Sherlock, a Sherlock Holmes movie. You're not going to get what you need from an Agatha Christie adaptation. You need to read the books. Well, I certainly think that. I mean, you're going to get something that's very different from watching it on television or film. You're going to, it's like the difference between two dimensions and three dimensions. Something in two dimensions can be attractive. And obviously, if you're watching it on television, it's an animated two, di two dimensions. It's like Mickey Mouse. Um, but, you know, Mickey Mouse is okay. There's nothing wrong with Mickey Mouse. But you can do better. Okay. And the important thing I would say in the case of both Holmes and Doyle, and particularly of, sorry, not Holmes and Doyle, I'm tired, um, in the case of both Doyle and Christie, and I would say particularly so in the case of Christie, um, is that you cannot really understand the morality of them unless you read the stories, because unfortunately that morality has been squeezed out um, in the uh, television and film representations. Not completely, because it varies, some of those are better than others, but on the whole it has. So for most... Um, British viewers of, of my generation, the David Suchet portrayal of Hercule Poirot is the, you know, the leading one. And, you know, Suchet does a good job, um, but it doesn't capture the nature of, um, uh, of Christie's writing. In some cases, the downright distortion. So the big four in which in the, in the novel, it is a real plot that, uh, Poirot is trying to thwart in a sense almost like a kind of rather tubby version of um, James Bond. Um, <laughs> in the Hercule Poirot version it turns of the television, it turns out to be a fantasy. Now, this is a completely different reading of it. And then more recently since that, we've had a series of television accounts of... Uh, of novels of Then There Were None, for example, or the ABC murders, um, which are simply totally different to what Christie was trying to offer. So what I would say is there's nothing wrong with putting out a story and saying, you know, this is the ABC murders, a version that draws on Agatha Christie but is not an account of the Agatha Christie's novel. What is wrong is to say, here is the ABC murders, Agatha Christie's story. Well, it isn't. And that, and that I think, is an important distinction. And um, I suppose, you know, um, people might say, well, I'm being too concerned with literalism to the text. Well, yes, I am saying... <laughs> why not pay attention to the text? The text reflects the complexity. And if you aren't willing to pay attention to the text, don't make judgments about the author based on a television version. You know, this is just an absurdity. And one of the great problems is, and we've seen that there's a major biography come out this year by a, a rather vapid television star called Lucy Worsley, which is just ridiculous. It is not an informed account, in my view. Um, but obviously, it what it does is it builds on the kind of presentation of Christie in terms of style. Well, what I would argue, as I argued in my book, is morality and politics. She is intensely political. Um, 
in one of the stories, Hastings says that Poirot is no socialist. And I think that's an understatement. <laughs> uh, and of course, she had a relative who stood as a Conservative Member of Parliament, just as, for example, Colin Doyle twice stood as a Liberal Unionist Member of Parliament. And, you know, it's an absurdity to think about these people without paying close attention to their political values and connections. And I'm afraid to say a lot of modern writers and readers are lazy and unwilling to do this or to think it through. So they'd rather focus on the, ep- yet again, and you see this with Lucy Worsley, yet again on the episode of Agatha Christie's um, temporary disappearance when she hears about her husband's adultery, rather than actually considering the nature of political change during the period that she's writing it on and how that affected her works, which is in some respects a more interesting question. She was somebody whose novels appeared over a period of more than half a century. That means that she is not a static uh, portray, portrayist of her age, she is responding to a changing age. And that makes her more interesting and more arresting. As far as Doyle is concerned, he went on writing till towards his death, and it tends to be forgotten. You know, he's seen as the quintessential novelist uh, and short storyist of the period running up to World War One, but many of the um, uh, Sherlock Holmes st- stories came out in the 1920s, indeed overlapping with Agatha Christie, and some of Agatha Christie's early portrayal of Poirot is a implicit, and all of the readers would have understood, explicit critique of of um, Sherlock Holmes. When Poirot's saying he doesn't have to go to the scene, he isn't going to read some great monograph on the number of, you know, types of cigar ash. What he needs to do is to sit and think it through. He is criticising the Sherlock Holmes approach. And indeed, he is drawing in many senses on the new psychoanalysis, analysis, which is something that Poirot is really interested in. Um, if you go back, of course, to both authors as well, it's instructive to put them in terms, as it indeed is with other authors, to put it in them in terms of their other writings. So, for example, um, and, you know, in Henry Fielding's case, he was also a journalist. Tamaya Smollett was a journalist. Daniel Defoe was a journalist. Charles Dickens was a journalist. Um, in the case of um, Arthur Conan Doyle, He wrote very widely. Um, He wrote historical fiction, which he was very proud of. He wrote um, science fiction. He wrote uh, detective short stories in which Sherlock Holmes does not appear. Um, He wrote stories that were really stories of the occult. He wrote about the occult. He was very interested in spiritualism. And, of course, he wrote about miscarriages of justice, which he was concerned to write, real miscarriages of justice. And he also wrote about, was one of the authors, as it were, persuaded to write about the British war effort in World War I. In the case of Christie, um, she wrote um, Mary, the Wary Westmacott stories, which are not detective novels. She wrote plays. You know, these are wide-ranging authors, just as Dorothy L. Sayers, for example, you know, very well known as a detective writer, also translated Dante's Divine Comedy, for for instance. 
So one has to give them weight as varied literary figures rather than typecasting them as some sort of monochrome writer of lesser consequence. Is there a sense in which you as an historian, obviously you find great value in looking backwards. And I wonder for many people, if you look at the general population, there are people who would be regarded as uh, liberal, more likely to change, more interested, at least they would characterize themselves, interested in the future. And there are people who are interested in what has been and preserving that and finding value in learning about their current life by looking back. Do you just see this as sort of a human conflict between people who are interested in the history of Sherlock Holmes, Agatha Christie, Arthur Conan Doyle, Poirot, and people are like, I just want the story. I want it to reflect my life today. I don't want to look into the details of how that is situated in the past. Oh, I'm sure you're you're absolutely correct, but they're not. They shouldn't be either or. I mean, you know, it should be possible to take an informed interest in something that is as it were, coming at you. I mean, I notice, for example, that particularly in the United States, but also increasingly in Britain, there's the habit at the end of many novels of putting in discussion points. You know, the idea is uh, often linked to the practice, which is very successful now, of the book group, okay? Now, those are asking you to reflect on what you are reading. They're not saying just read it as if it's a, something you can then chuck away. They're saying these are not simply disposable. These are works of literature, and obviously people are in, they're fully entitled there's no one way that you have to do something you know you can use the wasteland to wrap up your fish and chips if you like i mean you know you don't have to but if you want to understand it you need to think about it you need to think about the references you need to think about the author in that case obviously t.s eliot um, you need to think about you know he makes many references uh, to other works particularly for example shakespeare's play the tempest you need to think about what it meant what he's what resonance he is trying to strike um, if you just sim uh, regard something as simple, you're essentially saying you want literature to be like most television. And that's fine <laughs> if that's what you want. That's fine. And, you know, it may be that at the end of the day, that's what you want to do. Um, you know, many I've, I've written a number of books, three books, on histories of the British press, on different aspects of it. Many people read the newspaper or read the newspaper in order to do the crossword puzzle or for the racing news. You know, that's not necessarily better or worse than reading the editorial comment. It reflects a different value. But obviously, I myself am not particularly interested in writing a history about newspapers as the medium for crossword puzzles. It doesn't mean that they're not important in that term. It's just it doesn't interest me. Um, I'm more interested in literature that has a value and... Um, I'm trying to also, I think, re sort of preserve a cultural resonance which may be being lost in the presentism you referred to just now and in the fatism I referred to at the beginning. So I'm absolutely sure that Smollett is going to be written out of the historical record uh, because Smollett married a lady from the uh, West Indies and her family owned slaves. And, you know, um, that is now regarded quite rightly as a comment on our age as totally unacceptable. But it doesn't really help us in order to understand Smollett 
to uh, regard him simply in that light. You know, so you've got to think it doesn't help us to regard people in um, in too simple a fashion. As I mentioned, I've got um, a book coming out on the um, uh, the neo gothic novel, and uh, in order to write that book, I've tried to take the neo gothic novels seriously, okay. and in particular to argue as i think i've also argued in the case of austin in the case of dickens in the case of shakespeare in the case of fleming etc etc that these are authors for for whom evil has a real presence and if you don't understand that you can't understand much of literature now we can discuss i'm not a theologian and i don't think these days most people have much of an understanding of theology, whether they are um, ostensibly or really um, devout or atheistical. It doesn't make any difference. I think theology is really not understood by most people. But if you argue that um, in the past, at any rate, for intelligent people, evil had a real presence, then you have to think about what that tells you about the literature produced within those parameters, if, on the other hand, you are so committed to a view that that is ridiculous, then you obviously have a perfectly reasonable approach to the present day world. Um, although I, I personally am not quite convinced how you can deal with somebody like President Putin without believing that there is evil in the world. But we'll leave that to one side. But you have a perfectly plausible nature of the world, but it's not going to help you understand people in the past, nor does it help understand them if you regard their views as delusions. I had two questions to close, and you literally just answered the question because I wanted to ask you, you mentioned values and theology and morality. And so you touched on the fact that especially why these TV and film adaptations want to adjust the theological, moral, philosophical ideas inside a work to match to today, understandable, but then they lose whatever nuance that the author was trying to capture. But this leaves me, I can ask you the last question, which is, why does detective fiction resonate for you inside, like whatever little boy is inside that loves these stories so that you continue to read them and study them? What is it about detective fiction that grabs you? Oh, that's a very interesting question. I tend not to be introspective, so I can't really answer that. But let me tell you, I didn't really read much detective fiction when I was in my noughts or teens or twenties or thirties, or I think even into my forties. I wow. read I read essentially history books. What a surprise. I read lots and lots <laughs> of history books from a very early age. And you know, I read, for example, the novels of Balzac, the novels of Stendhal. Um, I read a lot of, I read Shakespeare's plays, you know, I read Dickens, I read a lot of the grand corpus, as well as a more modern or 20th century versions like, say, Evelyn War or Aldous Huxley. Um, I think uh, detective novels are something really for the last quarter century for me, which essentially is a long period of time, um, <laughs> and um, more particularly, possibly getting a bit more 
uh, willing to spend money differently because a detective, you know, I like to own books and I read quite rapidly. And, you know, to, to buy the equivalent of a book a day to read as a detective novel, Last Thing at Night, I read in the bath, uh, and I, in the tub, as you would say in America, and I, that's my luxury. Um, anybody who fancies sending me a present, it could be whiskey, cigars, and bath salts. There you go. <laughs> and detective novels. Um, but, uh, I, no, I enjoy them. But let's go back to the point you were making, which is much more interesting than me, is talking about morality. It is significant. And I'd say here, there is, the real problem is this. For those people who are devout, I would suggest the real problem is, how do you propound a morality that is going to encompass everybody who isn't? And to do so on a basis of not assuming that they are necessarily wrong. In other words, um, the devout ought to have humility rather than conviction. Um, and secondly, for those people who aren't devout, um, how do you provide a sense of value, values, and morality in a post religious age? Now, I think those are challenges, intellectual challenges and literary challenges. And I think you see detective writers trying to address the latter challenge very clearly. And I think you can obviously present a cynical account. You can, you know, have the whole police forces corrupt, etc., etc. But, you know, which, of course, is a style of writing in, say, if you're writing about detective fiction in Italy, you know, everybody's corrupt. That's the standard way you write the story. <laughs> um, but, um, uh, and, you know, and you get brilliant novels written accordingly, I ought to say. But if you are writing in a situation in which you're trying to argue for, whether you're writing about Italy, Britain, America, France, whatever, you're trying to argue in some form of, for some form of morality, how do you do it in a, in a post-religious age? Now, to that extent... Christie, who very clearly was suffused in religiosity, as I make clear in my book, uh, you will find many biblical references in her work. Indeed, you also find many Shakespearean references in her work. She's suffused with uh, cultural continuity and with religious morality. But what's interesting now is to see how writers of this generation are trying to do that. And what is also interesting to consider is which ones will still be read in 50 years' time and which will not. I think my favorite thing about every book I've read of yours so far, and I'll have to finish these two, the first book was I read two books on war and then I'll have to read these, is you open these questions up, these questions that really sometimes are not easily or solvable at all that we will have to wrestle with through our entire lifetime. So I appreciate your doing that. And it does help me understand how you can be so prolific because these questions are largely unanswerable. Those two you posed for theology are extremely difficult. And for thousands of years, we battled with them. So, Well, you're right. And one last thing on that. I uh, I wrote a book which Indi the University of Indiana published on the uh, called The Holocaust, Fact and Memory. And one of the things I did look at in that was the theological response to the Holocaust, both by uh, Jewish commentators and by Christian commentators. And that, again, is an interesting aspect 
of the memorialization of the Holocaust and one that is worth thinking about. Um, so, yes, no, I, I, I am, I'm interested and concerned about these points.